download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to July's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we discuss some of the TVs we've had through for review with our new TV reviewer, Steve Withers. So, welcome along to the first Home Cinema Podcast of 2010. Can you believe it? We're almost, well, we're over halfway into the year and we haven't done a Home Cinema Podcast. And we do apologise for that, but things have just been really, really busy for myself, Neil and Graham who are your usual podcast hosts. Unfortunately, Graham and Neil can't make it along for this podcast, but we do have our new reviewer, and uh, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Steve Withers. Hi, Steve, how are you? Hi, Phil, I'm very good, thank you, how are you? Very good, and Steve, just before we, we kick on with the podcast and the stuff that we're going to discuss in this edition, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background so listeners can get up to speed about what, you know, what you've done in your career so far. Okay, sure, yes, yeah. Phil. Basically, um, I'm a long-term AV enthusiast, obviously. A good 20 years now, going back to VHS and Laserdisc and, um, you know, the early days of DVD. And uh, previous to working in the AV world, I was a banker out in Asia. I returned to England last year, um, left banking and set up my own business, which is um, an audio and video consultancy firm, um, basically providing advice on home cinema installations, as well as a professional calibration service. And in, in line with that, I, t- I took um, the THX courses, uh, level one and level two, as well as the Home Acoustics Alliance, level one and level two, and the ISF, level one and level two. So hopefully that provides me with a good um, professional background to do um, both my job and also to provide reviews for um, AV forums. We did kind of uh, stick you in at the deep end when you started with bit, us here yeah. at AV forums. <laughs> You've done quite a few reviews now. So what TVs have actually stuck out for you as being good all-round products? I think um, good all-round performers definitely with the Panasonics. The uh, D25 and V20 that I reviewed, I found those to be um, good solid TVs, uh, you know, an excellent set of features, n- nice picture, good app performance out of the box, reasonably priced and did exactly what you want a TV to do. You know, They, they looked good, um, they sounded okay, and they had, um, they had, they had good features, internet TV, Freeview HD, for example, or it also had FreeSat HD as well. So all in all, I, I would definitely class the Panasonics as um, a great uh, all-round TV and, and a good purchase for anyone looking for, a, for an upgrade or a, a, new, a new LCD television. Um, I was also impressed generally with the, um, very impressed with the LG, although there has been some controversy about um, the fact that there's been some banding issues, which I think, in my opinion, you can feel you might agree with me, come from them trying to squeeze in rear back backlighting led backlighting in such a narrow chassis um, yeah. which is a good thing in the sense that you don't get the terrible uh, cloudy effect that quite often um, plagues edge lit led displays but um yes definitely i think they're really pushing the limit on how far the space was between the actual panel and the backlights themselves but overall though i did find it to be a very good picture it had some of the best out of the box performance i've ever seen from a tv um in the thx mode um, and with calibration, you could get pretty much reference uh, reference color and, and grayscale tracking out of it. So that was very good too. And I guess the strange thing there, Steve, is that, that we're talking about LED sets. So the two Panasonics were edge LED lit. That's correct, yes. 
And obviously the, the LG was using the, the full backlight LED system. And now people might find that a little bit strange because obviously AV forums were always striving for performance. And up until, I guess, this year, that's always been plasma TV. Yeah, absolutely. It has indeed. And I, I think there's been, um, well, certainly technologically there's been some good advances on, on, on the LCD side. I mean, some of them, I think, have been driven more by marketing departments than they have been by by engineers. And I'm still not personally that convinced by um, things like 200 hertz motion flow and that kind of stuff. However, in terms of black levels, which particularly were always a weak point with um, with LCD TVs, now that they're introducing um, you know, localized dimming and global dimming to try and improve the um, improve the black levels, there has definitely been a step up there. And you know, it's, it's good to see companies like LG putting so much effort into producing a display that is accurate in terms of its color performance and its grayscale tracking. And, and, and if not maybe out of the box, then at least giving you the ability to do that if you have the correct calibration controls and, 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 and the hardware and software to do it. And of course, I mean, obviously anybody that reads our reviews knows how um, uh, we mark those. And that, that is with the grayscale performance, that is with the color gamut performance and so on. So have you been surprised with those um, three TVs that we're talking about there because they are slightly different technologies. The Panasonic's an edge-lit TV, so the first thing that always passes through my mind with an ed- edge-lit LED is the clouding issue that you're going to yeah. get because of where the LEDs are placed um, around the screen now. Um, did the Panasonic suffer in, in that regard? They did to a small degree, but certainly they were much, much better than other TVs that I've seen. The Samsung C8000, for example, uh, was, was, was suffered quite badly from clouding, to the point where you could even see it on bright scenes as opposed to just on a dark screen, uh, which was a real letdown for that TV. Whereas on the Panasonics, there was a tiny bit, usually at the edges, which is obviously makes sense because that's where the lights actually are. But on the whole, their performance, there was a pretty uniform screen and much better than other TVs that I've seen. It seems to me, though, that that is a limitation of edge-lit edge LED displays. You know, you, you get these wafer-thin uh, displays, but um, the price you pay is that you just can't create a, a very uniform, a completely uniform uh, backlight. And I guess that's, you know, once again, do, do I need a TV that's the thickness of, a, of an After 8 Mint? No, I don't really. I mean, I mean, three or four inches is still a very slim TV, especially for those of us who can remember the days of those massive CRT TVs. So, uh, you know, once again, you can't help but feel it's being driven by the marketing department. And the biggest problem I find with most TVs these days are marketing-driven uh, so-called features that actually are detriment to the image quality of that display. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's becoming more and more common. It is. And it's one of these things that, you know, you get the new TVs in. And we've got to look at these features because we've got to tell people what they're like. And, oh, it does my head and It really does. Well, spend um, the first couple of days just working out yeah. what they do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes I never do really work out what they do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but some of them. I mean, even the names are misleading, and you're not quite sure what is what is that meant to do. It's quite frustrating. Yeah, it it seems to be one of these things that that does plague the industry is this bigger number game. And uh, you know, we've had it with Panasonic with their plasmas. You know, this 600 hertz motion control, blah blah blah. No, that's that's got nothing to do with motion control. And then you look at the likes of the LGs. Now, the LG LE8900, which is the one that we're talking about, which you reviewed, and I've just done the LX9900. Now, they did differ slightly because I'm, I'm sure the LE89 was 200 hertz true motion. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, correct, yeah. Yet yeah. yeah, the, the LX9900 has 400 hertz true motion, yeah. which is absolute rubbish, basically. <laughs> um 
basically all it's doing is it's flickering the backlight and uh, they're claiming that that produces 400 hertz. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the motion and I'm sure if you put the two TVs together uh, with a true motion set at, at its highest level, both would look exactly the same. I've never actually seen any motion feature that has actually improved the motion of uh, on, on, on the display. And in fact, um, I, I'm, if you just turn them completely off, it doesn't really look any different to me. Most of the time, you end up with, uh, you know, when they have inter- frame interpolation, you know, it, it will ruin any film-like image and create that video or um, soap opera look that some people refer to. So, you know, I mean, literally, I think on every TV I've ever reviewed, I've always turned them all off, and I found yeah. that to give me the best image. Yeah, definitely. And a good example of that with the, the LG, which I've just reviewed, is the... Uh, one of the demo discs I use is Star Trek, the new Star Trek, with the handheld cameras and yeah. lens flare and all that kind of thing. And uh, when they're on the bridge of the Enterprise and the camera is zooming in and it's handheld and it's it's shaking about and all the rest of it, you turn these frame interpolation systems on and it completely ruins the look of the film. It now looks like uh, this handheld camera is on a tripod there's no movement that should be there. It looks ultra smooth, and people it looks like video, look, doesn't it? Yeah, it's people suddenly look like they're in a soap opera with, with good lighting. And it's a real shame because, unfortunately, most a lot of a lot of um, not people, perhaps not people who, who read the website, who are more um, AV literate, but general public are completely unaware of how much how unfilm-like or unlike the image the director or director of photography intended. And it's a real shame. I mean, then again, most people. You know, they only see TVs in showrooms, bright, you know, maximum brightness, maximum vivid, colourful picture, you know, which is nothing like it's supposed to look. Yeah. When you do calibration, people quite often say, oh, the colours look a bit muted or it's not very bright, is it? But of course, that's because they're used to seeing a wrong image. Yeah. It's an education process as much as anything else. It's, I mean, it's, it's one of these things that we've done at Bristol on a number of occasions. It's certainly the last two years at the Bristol show, we've... Uh, we have done that and uh, shown people a calibrated image against an uncalibrated image. And it's amazing how many people uh, point to the wrong image and say that they like that. They, yeah. We did that with two LG TVs this year, um, two LG LED TVs, one set which looked absolutely atrocious. We, we deliberately turned everything on to full. Everything was switched on. It was clipping white. It was clipping the blacks. It had a green cast all over the screen. Yet people still pointed to that one against the calibrated one because it was brighter. Yeah, absolutely. Was that we're using um, AV Foundry's Video EQ Pro for the calibrated image? That's right. We were we were using yeah, that, so and I, I know that you're going to do a review of that in the next few coming, weeks. Folks, yes, there's a review coming. <laughs> uh, yeah, but and, and it wasn't until you actually pointed out to people exactly what was wrong with the image that they all liked before they, they would move over to the calibrated image and then understand exactly what they were getting back from from that image, which wasn't as bright, but then it wasn't dull either. I wouldn't describe it as dull. It was just right. It had the right dynamic range. It had the right colour. Yeah. And you were getting all the detail that should be there that was completely lost on the TV that they all liked. The end result is that basically I turn off 99% of all features on a TV because they're almost, almost without, doubt, without fail. They're um, detrimental to the image, unfortunately. And, I don't know about and, you, Phil. Do you know? Yeah, I, I do. And um, I guess it, it's just one of these things that it's going to be an educational thing. Hopefully the reviews are starting to do that. We've we've actually moved over to Calman 4, just for the listeners to know. And 
that gives better looking graphs, I think, and easier yeah. to understand graphs. So people should be should be able to pick up quite quickly exactly what's being seen and then how that will affect the performance. But that's the biggest hurdle that you've got to get across is that it's not being overly technical. We're not being overly technical with what we do. We're just doing it right, basically. And Well, ho- hopefully when you look at a CIE chart, it's fairly obvious because you have the triangle, which is what you want it to be, Rex 709 or wherever it is. And then you see the triangle that the TV is actually producing. And it should be pretty obvious to anybody that unless it's exactly matching the triangle that's supposed to be, that's wrong. And obviously, you know, you, we tend to see quite often in, 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 um, in testing TVs, you know, they, they push the green or they push the red, especially the green, it seems recently. You know, and you end up with a, a green cast over everything because, you know, there's too much green in the image. Um, now, TV, they've wanted to do that. That's fine. But they have to give you the, the controls to be able to calibrate it back to what it should be. If you haven't got that option, then unfortunately there's nothing you can do about the TV unless you buy an outboard processor. Now, we have had some input with uh, the manufacturers with regard to adding adding in the calibration controls. And I've got to you know, uh, put my hands up and say well done to LG and well done to Panasonic this yeah, year absolutely. for adding in those controls. It has helped tremendously. There are still a few little niggles here and there which hopefully with the feedback that we give them, uh, they will be able to sort those out. But I guess at the end of the day, Steve, the, the important thing for for the listeners listening and the general public at large is that they need to have an option to go to when they buy the TV that's going to give them the best out-of-the-box performance. Yeah. And one of the best ways of doing that is to have a THX certified display. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that's definitely, um, you know, because of the nature of the certification process, um, you know, it's 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 a it's a guarantee of a degree of quality, a degree of tolerance. So you 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 should be getting a reasonably good out of the box performance. And certainly, from the, I've only tested one THX um, certified TV, which was the LG. But no question, the THX mode was very very good out of the box performance, very good, the best I'd seen, in fact. So that that was very impressive. You know, and and that that's the important thing that you know they can have all the features they want and they can do what they like to the color gamut, but they have to give you the option to turn off the features you don't want and to calibrate the display to an accurate um, an image. And as long as companies do that, then no, no, it's not so bad. But where you have a problem is when, is when um, you know, manufacturers uh, like Sharp um, begin to mess around with the color gamut to the point where there's nothing you can do to fix it. And by this, I'm talking about the um, addition of what they call a, a fourth subpixel or uh, a fourth primary, which is obviously, you know, bit of a misnomer because there are only three primary colors red green and blue but they're adding yellow as a sort of pseudo fourth primary which basically just means they're pushing yellow and giving everything a, a yellow cast in it or a more, a more golden image as they like to call it um which whilst it can look quite attractive in certain scenes you know it's totally inaccurate and, and when i measured it the um you know the tv had the most bizarre cie graph i'd ever seen and no matter what i tried to do with the um with the CMS controls, you just couldn't get that to an accurate image. And that's annoying because you know, there's nothing you can do to fix that. It's going to be inherent within the display. And this has got to be one of the most annoying things, certainly when we deal with manufacturers. Some manufacturers just don't get it. And I guess we've got to remember that they are in a business of trying to sell people TVs. So common sense approaches, you have something that's bright, vivid, very colourful to attract the eye in the showroom. But it's certainly been my long-held belief, and I know you're going to agree with me, Steve, that you know the TV, when you watch content, you want to see the content as it should be. You don't want to see uh, their representation of what they think some of these films should look like. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I understand their need to differentiate themselves in the marketplace. You know, I understand they need some kind of USP, but um, not 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 at uh, the detriment of the image. And and unfortunately, you know, marketing departments are, are controlling things. You know, and and the engineers are just kind of tagging along, delivering um, possible ways of making their television, diff- you know, stand out from the competition. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes it's very misguided. And I think adding a fourth, you know, so-called primary. It is a very misguided um, effort on the part of um, on the part of Sharp to differentiate themselves in the market, and also quite a, a strange one, really, when you consider that you know the current trend is moving towards possibly moving towards 3D, that they should suddenly be adding you know a fourth dimension of color, as it were. Um, it seems like an unusual um, a move on their part, um, and, and a retrograde step, frankly, in terms of image quality. Because you say, Phil, I mean, you know, we, really what we want to do is replicate, you know, what the director intended. Um, as closely as possible that's the kind of holy grail of audio video and when you see a television like for example the pioneer kuro who that is capable of doing that you are you can be absolutely gobsmacked by the by the by the potential there and, and the true quality of the image it's the same that so many other tv manufacturers seem to fall short of that i don't want people to think that we're having a go at sharp but sharp are a perfect example of obviously what we're talking about here and and that is um, but basically coming up with their own standard of how they're going to do things. So basically with with the, the Ali 821, which is the TV we're talking about here, yeah. it was an edge-lit TV as well. Um, overall, although the colours were all wrong and everything was all wrong, was was there any redeeming features with that set? It was a well-built display. And in fact, I mean, the processing was pretty good in it, the video processing. And, and um, you know, the image it produced was not unpleasant. It just wasn't correct. Uh, um, so whilst you, whilst you, you could you know, see quite a nice, colourful image, it wasn't what the director or the director of photography intended you to see. And, and you know, so you, you kind of felt like you know, Sharp, if they just produced a television that, you know, produced an accurate image, it would have been a great TV. It would have got such a, a higher score in terms of, you know, the review. Um, you know, so they shot themselves in the foot, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, by, produce, by adding this uh, so-called fourth primary colour. Um, and I think Toshiba are doing something similar, aren't they, as well? Yeah. So, yeah, so not, I mean, so it's not just Sharp that we're having a go at here. But, you know, I, I just think that it's a trend that I hopefully won't last, is all I can say, because I, I know it's just not the way we should be going in terms of displays. We should be looking at displays that are accurate, you know, and produce an, an, an accurate image. That, that's what TV should be doing. You know, nothing more, nothing less, really. Just uh, displaying the image that the director intended. It's It's one of these things as well, which gives you an instant comparison against TV. So you were talking about the Panasonics, um, the LED Panasonics, the LCD TVs. Now, when you put them up against this Sharp, the thing is that the Panasonics get it right out of the box, don't they? And and so colours look correct yep. on the Panasonics, yet Sharp looks completely wrong. And, and it's all because of our marketing department. It seems to be a strange way of doing business at this moment in time, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like the it's like the the, you know, the 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 cart's being pushing the horse or something. It's just it's all the wrong way around. It should be that you um, you develop some innovative display, and then marketing sell it to the to to the to the general public rather than marketing saying, okay, this is what we need in order to get some kind of foothold in the marketplace, and then you find a way of creating it. You know, but I mean, I mean, and I'm not having a go at Sharp because they're always guilty, all guilty of this. Frankly, um, you read any you read any read any website, you know, blurb on the TV, and most of it is absolute twaddle. You know, the, the, the contrast ratio numbers that they're putting out are just ridiculous. They're basing that upon a measurement when they turn off the screen. 
Well, yeah. at no point in actual viewing are you going to turn off the screen. Therefore, that is a completely spurious number, 9 million to 1 or whatever it is. It's just ludicrous. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just pure marketing rubbish, unfortunately. And, and you know, people, the average person in the street, they're not going to be aware of this. They're going to think, well, that sounds good. But, you know, it's all tricks. It's all tricks. Same with, um, you know, th- there has been inherent um, weakness in the LCD technology, which is their ability to, to produce motion. But what the marketing department has done is taken this inherent weakness and turned it into a, a marketing advantage, which is, you know, results in 200 and 400 hertz you know, motion processing. Um, whereas, bizarrely, in the case of plasma, a perceived weakness in plasma was image retention and burn-in, which has not really been a problem for years and never really was. But that's still a stigma that's attached to plasmas, unfortunately. It seems that in the LCD world, they've taken a problem and turned it into an advantage. A marketing advantage, not a natural advantage. With this marketing blurb that is about, I mean, there's no secret that there's uh, there are behind the scenes market employees where one company will go after another company and diss their technology, and it seems to be that since I'm not going to name the manufacturer, but since one manufacturer pulled out of plasma screens and went solely with LCD. We suddenly had all this, well, you need to regas your plasma, plasma burns in, yeah. it's too heavy, it's power hungry. Now, it is power hungry than an LCD, but when you put a plasma TV up against just a basic run-of-the-mill uh, AV receiver, that AV receiver will be drawing at least a 1,000 watts mm. in power yeah, consumption quite. over what a plasma will do now, which is between 250 and 350 watts. And, of course, the other misconception there with, with power consumption is, of course, the fact that because plasma is a self-illuminating device, it doesn't use all that power when it's displaying images. The power consumption varies between what the image is on screen, whereas the LCD, in most cases, is always at that 130 yeah, watts it's because it's got the backlight. Yeah, quite. I mean, yeah, and obviously, you know, when you see numbers bandied about for plasma power consumption, you know, that's rarely going to be. A, a calibrated plasma, which often you know we'll find will improve the the power consumption of that particular display. I think ISF had done a quite a lot of research into this when they were talking with the um, um, state of California when they were trying to bring that legislation in on, on power usage on displays. And of course, THX did their own thing as well, yeah. which was uh, up to fifty percent in some cases yeah. between a calibrated display and and one in vivid mode. And how many members of the public have their TVs in vivid mode? I don't well, that, that, that's pro- the problem isn't just marketing blurb and manufacturers. The problem also lies with, and I'm not going to name any names here, but certain magazines who, um, who, you know, who basically, you know, propagate this kind of rubbish. You know, you read some of the reviews and they're, they're just ludicrous. They're not, they're, I mean, they're re- repeating manufacturers' blurb or they're just saying stuff that's absolutely, bears no relation to reality whatsoever. How how is the poor the poor a guy in the street meant to decide? It's beyond me sometimes. You see that, and you hit the nail on the head there, Steve. You know, one of the things that always winds me up is that people say, "Oh, it's too complicated to talk about calibration. It's too complicated to talk rubbish, absolute rubbish." Because because of one simple fact, the content that you watch is mastered in almost all cases to the same standard, which says. What colours should look like, what skin tone should look like, what the grayscale white point should be. And as long as the TV or the projector matches that, you're seeing the material exactly the way it should be. And once you achieve that, then you can see where the other weaknesses are in TVs. But it seems yeah. to be that the industry's all round the wrong way. And it's all round the wrong way because they've got to sell your products. So 
they don't understand standards and they're not going to listen to standards. At the end of the day, you're absolutely right. But what you need is a standard benchmark, um, which is what we basically have. Um, and in this case, we're talking about, let's say, in the case of Color Rec 709, which is used for mastering PAL DVDs, high def um, uh, TV, and Blu rays. You know, and um, it, you, what you really want is a display that can reproduce that exactly. And then after that, what you're looking at are things like video processing and whether that's good and whether, it, you know, its cadence detection is correct and whether its scaling is good and this sort of stuff. But, you know, without some kind of bedrock, some benchmark and underlying, um, a bit, you know, uh, performance in terms of grayscale and color performance, you know, you're, you're, start, you're already starting off from, from on a back foot. Well, you're in the realms of fantasy then. It's, it's, yeah. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but you're in the terms of uh, realms of fantasy because it then becomes personal preference. And um, we've got... Uh, well, you know, a good example of that, Phil, would be, and I, I mentioned this in my review of the Philips, is that <laughs> during the setup, you get an option to um, select the image that looks best for you. You know, you're basically shown two side-by-side images. Ch- choose the one you prefer. Now, that's the very antithesis of how you should be calibrating and setting up a display. Um, you know, uh, I have to say that that you know any calibrator would you know might be you know shaking with rage at the side of that sort of thing. Of course, this is bringing us back to the point that it's not difficult. It's not technical what we're talking about with TVs. It's very very simple. There's standards. Doesn't meet the standards. That's the that's the main thrust of, of everything. And it just seems to be that manufacturers like Sharp with their quad pixel thing is they've gone off on a completely different tangent and yeah. they're just not listening to to what the industry is and one thing that i always hear uh, an argument that comes back um i've seen it from from some sharp engineers on the internet i've also seen other people discussing it and that is that well yellow has always been a weak point when it comes to video but when you had a, a pixel in there a yellow pixel in there or you boost yellow um you're actually adding something in that, that just isn't there in the mastered material. The mastered material is at Rec 709. Now, if Rec 709 is weak in any, any areas, and, and yellow is a difficult colour to, to get right, that it doesn't give them any excuse to go and develop this new technology that, uh-huh. that just completely sc- screws things around. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that Rec 709 is perfect, but that's what it's mastered in. So that's what it's meant to look like. Uh, and anything else is, is just... Uh, you know, is, um, um, distorting the the, the the intentions of of the filmmakers or, or the TV, you know, the, the film creators. I just, uh, I, I really, I mean, I, I really don't understand uh, what Sharp's thinking really is on this one, to be honest. Other other than trying to create some kind of USP. Also, more to the point, yellow is not a primary color. It's made up of green and red. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm quite sure what they think they're doing anyway. Yeah, well, it, it's quite funny. And again, listeners, we're not having a go at Sharp, but we are having a go at the. Uh, the philosophy behind this technology. They always mention printers in their blurb, in their manufacturing blurb, in their PR blurb. It's got nothing to do with print technology, which uses a completely different colour space and a completely different way of, of showing yeah, well, colour. It uses cyan, magenta and yellow, doesn't it? It's addition, addition rather than subtraction. Yeah, well, definitely. Subtraction yeah. rather than addition, I can't remember. Which, which is not how it's done with light, and that's how TV yeah, works. Green, blue and red to create images in, in, on TVs and projectors. And so it's complete opposite, yeah. Yeah, the complete opposite. And unfortunately, that is the standard that, that we're going to have for the next at least five to ten years. There's, there's a lot of talk, a lot of projectors, certainly in the projector uh, field, there's a lot of projectors now coming with one preset that's set to the DCI, which is a digital cinema initiative, uh, color space, which uh, that gamut is huge compared to the, the Rec. 709. 
but there's no material mastered yeah. in DCI. Goes back to the same thing, same with deep color and all this stuff. It's all well and good, but that's not what the material you're watching is mastered in. And as long as it's mastered at Rec 709, then that is the only thing you need to recreate yeah. to correctly produce. And anything else is giving you a distorted um, image in terms of what was originally intended by the creators. It's as simple as that. Whatever anyone else says, it's as simple as that. I mean, no matter you know, what marketing blurb or what uh, you know, new bells and whistles they bring out, until they start mastering film material or TV material in a different color space, then Rec 709 is what you should be looking, trying to achieve. Simple as that. Excellent. So we're going to be back in just a few seconds. So stay where you are. The highest definition. 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 This is the AV Forums Podcast. Contact the AV Forums Podcast. Email podcast at avforums.com. So welcome back, and to wrap up the podcast, uh, we're going to talk about the big hot potato in the industry. It has been for the last 12 months now, uh, if not longer, and that's 3D, and we're now starting to get product coming through for review. We've now reviewed, I think it's three TVs now, so we've done the the Panasonic VT20, we've looked at the Samsung C8000, and we've also just reviewed the LG LX9900. Now, all of them are active TVs, which means that they use active glasses. And if you want uh, a brief look at what all the 3D technology is, we do have a video on avforums.com forward slash TV. If you go and have a look there, uh, you can see our guide to 3D, which takes you through the different technologies. But, Steve, um, you had a look at the Samsung, the C8000. Uh, What did did you think? Well, I have to say that I was very excited when I knew I was going to be reviewing the seat. C8000 because you know I've been reading about 3D TV for well over a year. Um, obviously, it's been big in the movies, um, Avatar, you know, breaking all box office records. And then I'd seen some demos at um, the uh, the demo that you arranged um, back at uh, at JVC's offices um, back in I think it was October last year, and also um, a demo that you guys did at with LG, I believe. At uh, at the Bristol AV show, so I'd seen some demos and, and I was very excited to get my hands on uh, on a, on a 3D TV and try it out at home. And uh, I have to say that one of the problems I had actually is a bit of an anticlimax because, to be honest, one big problem with, with 3D at the moment is lack of content. Um, and unlike you, Phil, who I think have had access to Sky's 3D service, I don't actually have Sky at home because um, I can't put up a dish on my on my cottage. Um, so I was reduced to basically one one um, one 3D game which is Avatar, and um, some uh, demo material that you provided in Monsters vs. Aliens, the demo disc that uh, Samsung are, are packaging with their um, with the Blu-ray player and um, and the glasses. So uh, that was a bit of a, a, um, a problem, really, in terms of lack of content. But uh, in terms of actual, um, actual usage, um, uh, I, I found, that, to be honest, watching 3D content... No one near as engaging, obviously, as doing as watching something in the movies. Uh, and to, for my money, um, ma- the two main areas where I think 3D could be big and really have add potential, add, add genuine uh, value, and that is uh, sport, because there's no question that watching sport in 3D definitely gives you a more sense of, you know, obviously dimension, dimension within with, on the pitch. Things like rugby, for example, where you have uh, a goal kick. You can literally see the ball going between the posts, which in 2D, you're never quite sure if it's gone through or not until you see the referee or the side touch judges you know, show you whether it has or not. 
so I think sport definitely benefits from 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 being in 3D. Um, but I think that might be more of a sort of you know, pub atmosphere, big game thing on a big screen, um, projector screen rather than a TV. Uh, but where, where, where 3D really could take off is in gaming because that definitely improves gaming. I found Avatar not a great game, frankly, if you read the reviews of it, but uh, so much more involving playing it in 3D. First-person shooters or Grand Theft or something like that in 3D would be absolutely amazing. So, so my experience to date, and this is only on, based on one TV, uh, I'm, hope, I'm hopefully going to be doing another review soon, and I've got a lot more material with, to watch on it now, which, which will help, but, but certainly I found that 3D w- was really added to, th- to gaming in a big way, and I can see that becoming very popular, but I'm less convinced about 3D on more normal you know, movies or TV programs. Uh, what, what, was your, what was your thoughts, uh, Phil? Well, I... My foot's echo yours, to be honest. I mean, Avatar, it's an awful game. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it it's is. Not, it's a terrible game, to be honest. It's, it's not a good game, but it's just that immersive uh, feel that it, it, it does give. I mean, there are issues there. There's a lot of crosstalk in there. Um, and crosstalk is, is, is going to be one of these things that we're going to talk about probably for the next 18, to, 18 months to two years because it, it's going to be something that they're going to need to work on. Um, but in Did terms you find of, a lot of crosstalk... Uh, on the on the on the Panasonic, that, uh, that was Tasman, wasn't it? No, there, w- there wasn't an awful lot of cro- there was crosstalk still there. Um, it's not completely free of of that uh, artifact, but uh, it just seemed to handle it a lot better than the LG. Yeah, I found uh, it be quite a big problem on the on, on the Samsung, to be honest. Yeah, on the C eight thousand, uh, there was it was quite noticeable, particularly uh, when there was you know uh, extreme three D effects. You really saw it; it really stood out. And that was on you know, all material, not just on the uh, in the game. I've, I've got to say, sport-wise, thankfully, al- although the football games were exclusive to the pubs, so you didn't get to see those live. Um, Sky do replay them later in the later in the week. So, um, what we do is set the Sky Plus box to record those. So I had quite a bit of material to go through and check. And uh, I've got to agree with you. Um, sport, it really works. Um, there's just that little bit of extra dimensionality to things, uh, and like you say, you can then, when you're looking at things like uh, like a corner kick, it gives you that that extra sense of where the actual players are in the 3D space, if that makes sense. Um, so you can see where they are, you know, how far away they are from the ball, which is always the thing on on normal 2D broadcast is uh, when the ball goes up in the air, you never know exactly where that ball's going. It, it's going up in the air somewhere, but you don't know if it's coming towards the camera, going away from the camera. And uh, and 3D just gives you that little bit extra dimensionality to things, so yeah. you can see how far things are away from you and how close they are to you and so on. But I've also got to say there's an awful lot of crap out there as well when it comes to 3D. And I sent you that demo disc, um, and apart from the beach volleyball... Uh, which, which was quite impressive. It was only <laughs> 720p, unfortunately, but uh, uh, yes, that definitely added to the enjoyment. And I, I would probably consider um, buying a Sky box and putting up a satellite dish and ignoring the council's orders not to. <laughs> the uh, yeah, apart from the beach volleyball scenes, the, there were a couple of clips in there which a few of the shots were forced. And and yes, it's a new technology, so they're going to try and. And sell it, and with a demo disc, you're going to have things forced at you. And, but the main thing with 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 this latest in, incarnation of 3D is that it should extend the TV or or your projector screen backwards. It should be 
adding depth. It shouldn't be a yeah, thing. Looking through a window rather than poking you in the eye, right? Exactly. And a lot of these demo clips, there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of that, you know, pointing of fingers or, or trees that suddenly pop up in the foreground and they're just as sharp as the background and it looks false, yeah. it looks cool. fake. But also there are some really, really good uh, examples of the content, such as Cloudy um, with a chance of meatballs. There's yeah, you, yeah. I mean, if you watch um, 3D done well at the cinema, for example, like Up, um, you know, it's 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 creating a sense of dimension without it being, you know, it's just creating a sort of using it as a gimmick. That's the word. It's not a gimmick. You know, it's basically adding to the storytelling. It's part of storytelling, um, you know, um, narrative, rather than it being some kind of uh, gimmick, which I think is what 3D has been guilty of mostly in the past. Yeah. I can remember in the 80s going to see uh, Amateurville 3D and stuff like that, and there'd always be stuff flying out of the, you know, towards the camera. Yeah. Whereas if you watch um, Ice Age 3, or, or, or um, up films like that. You know, the, the, the three dimensionality is there to enhance the storytelling. It's not there as just purely a gimmick. And that's where good filmmaking, you know, good filmmaking can really make a difference. Um, same goes with Avatar, which is really more like looking out a window rather than is being, you know, gimmicky. So, so I think I think that's important. And the other interesting thing about this, the C eight thousand, which is something it's got a feature it's got that isn't on the on the Panasonic that you reviewed, is it also has the two D into three D on the fly conversion, which is an interesting feature. I mean, it doesn't work. Don't get me wrong. I mean, but the fact that it actually manages to do it at all is quite impressive when you consider this is, you know, a real-time 2D to 3D conversion. And and sometimes it actually does look almost three-dimensional. Um, other times it completely loses the plot and it becomes something like it was painted by Salvador Dali or something. But, <laughs> but you know, it actually, um, you know, when it works, it, it's, it's surprisingly good. And, and, and I think... Uh, it might even work. I tried it with a few games, actually. Cause, you know, I actually tried it with a few games. And uh, and I think there, you know, they, they're, they're, there's a tiny bit of potential. Ultimately, it's still a gimmick. But, um, and you would never watch a program. You know, it, it, I don't think anyone would want to. But it is, it is surprising that it, that it worked at all, considering the amount of processing power that needs to be involved to do that, to create, take a 2D image and create a 3D map of it. And frankly, it was no worse than watching Clash of the Titans, which was absolutely abysmal in terms of the 3D. <laughs> I mean, that was just, it was like there was somebody standing directly behind the person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was, honestly, I mean, that kind of stuff could kill 3D if they're not careful. You know, um, rushing out fake 3D. Because as you were saying, it's not just a question of um, it being in 3D. It's the way you shoot it, the way you edit it. There's a very different um, language. It's, um, you know, it's the language of 3D filmmaking is slightly different from the normal vocabulary of filmmaking. And, uh, and um, you know, people like Cameron might understand that and people at Pixar definitely do. But uh, but you know if you just take an ordinary two D movie and then convert it into three D, it's not going to look the same. There's too many quick cuts, too many camera pans. It's um, not the sort of things you don't you're not really meant to do when shooting in three D. So so I think the, the filmmakers need to be careful. You know that they're jumping on the three D bandwagon. They don't go and kill the golden goose by um, producing a lot of really rubbish content. I guess uh, it's going to be interesting in the months ahead, um, and obviously we're going to discuss this ad nauseum, uh, I have no doubt, on uh, future podcasts. It's going to be interesting to see how the technology uh, progresses, and certainly once Sky get their channel up and running this year um, with their 3D content, which is going to be a mixture of uh, uh, sports and films and in-house production, so it should be interesting to see. Uh, exactly what line they take. We, we've seen Hollywood, we've seen some really bad examples like Clash of the Titans that you just mentioned. Uh, another one which was done 
uh, as a 2D film and then changed to 3D was Alice in Wonderland as well, but I didn't catch that at the cinema in 3D. But yeah, I agree with you. If, if it's shot in 3D, it's shot the right way, then it does look quite impressive. I guess the, yeah, the other problem is setting my glasses on for two hours and to be honest, the Panasonic glasses were really uncomfortable. Um, yeah, I have to say the Samsung glasses were, were were reasonably comfortable and large enough that you could put them over uh, over another. Un, un, you're wearing normal glasses underneath, and also unlike the Panasonic, they didn't have those open bits letting in side light the way that I think you mentioned in your review, which would be quite annoying. And uh, I've got to say, LG really uh, threw in a curveball with their 3D glasses as they're rechargeable uh, with a USB lead. Well, hang on. Uh, I think uh, we have to t- take a slight umbrage at Samsung here for, uh, you know, you put out a £2,000 TV, 3D TV, and you don't include any glasses at all. It just seems ludicrous to me. Oh, yeah, I, f- I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. You know, you have to spend another 150 quid on, on a pair of glasses or, or buy them as a pack with a Blu-ray DVD player. That, that, that seems to me that, 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 you know, when you consider the Panasonic, um, Panasonic's um, Plasma 3D comes with two pairs of glasses and uh, a dongle for uh, high f- uh, Wi-Fi yep. internet connection yep. for the same price. <laughs> and yep. that's a better image and, and, uh, uh, LG, and less cross-talk. <laughs> yeah, and L- LG do the same thing. They, they're yeah. including two pairs of glasses as well, um, which is a good thing. But then if you think Family 4, they're going to have to go out and spend another 200 quid well, just no, to, true, but I think it just shows a bit of willing, doesn't it? <laughs> just to include yeah, a couple yeah, because yeah, uh, I think Sony are guilty of this as well. They, they are selling their TVs without the glasses as well, so so they are guilty of um, getting you to buy the, the add-ons there as well. And given that there's, there's not exactly... I mean, although 3D certainly has been popular and people have been talking about it within our small world, I know from talking to friends who aren't interested in AV... Uh, you know, there, there isn't any real interest, frankly. And as soon as you mention having to wear glasses to them, people just turn off. They're like, oh, I'm not sitting at TV watching glasses, sitting at home watching TV with glasses on. It's one thing to go to the movies for two hours, a bit of an event. But I think, you know, casual viewing at home, uh, I think they're going to have an uphill battle convincing the average person to, to be bothered with that. Yeah. Like I said, I think gamers will be up, all up, will definitely be up for it. Uh, maybe sports fans. But, but, um, but the average viewer, I mean, would someone want to watch you know, EastEnders in 3D? Hardly. I guess we've got to remember as well that it's a new technology, so it's going to be expensive to, to get into it. It's going to be the early adopters at this moment in time, or people who want to buy a high-quality TV, such as the Panasonic VT20, uh, which comes with 3D. So yeah. you know, you're know, you paying for a high-quality TV, it's and it just person. so happens that it's got 3D on board. I think that's the way the market's going to go. It'll be interesting to see in the next 12 to 18 months when we start getting the, the next year's models coming through, just how many of them are, are maybe 3D capable or 3D ready, and you have to go and buy the glasses and so on. Yeah, I suppose the other thing we should probably mention uh, and I'm sure to listeners is that um, obviously the TVs that we're talking about here, the ones we've reviewed so far, which is which is the, uh, the Panasonic V20 and the... Um, LG 990 and the Samsung C8000. Oh, these were all active shutter glasses, which are the expensive ones that you um, are hundred pounds a pop, and you know maybe even more for rechargeable ones. Whereas there's also passive um, technology which uses polarized glasses, very similar to the ones you you will have almost certainly been using in a cinema. Um, and I haven't actually tested one of those yet, and, and neither are you, I think, Phil. Have you? Uh, no, it's well. There's only the LG uh, 950. Yeah, and we're waiting to get that f- through. For so those glasses are a lot cheaper. <laughs> and so, um, so that that, that's, that that may be going forward. That could be an interesting um, 
point for for casual purchasers, people who perhaps aren't as into AV as the people who will be buying the, you know, on the bleeding edge who are going to buy um, by the early, early adopters are going to buy the first um, 3D displays. Yeah, and and I guess the other important thing to point out there is that, that there's not a great deal of difference between viewing a passive TV and viewing the active no. TVs. To be honest with you, on you know on the experiences that I have uh, with that set that we had at Bristol, we had the the LG passive TV that's. Uh, now in in the pubs and clubs across the country for the 3D football. But still, everybody that came up, even if they were sceptical about the technology, everybody left with with a more positive outlook on 3D, which was surprising for me because I've always never been quite convinced with the technology. Um, I'm starting to turn a little bit now that I'm getting to use it on a regular basis, but I don't know what your thoughts are, but... I always thought there'd be this negativity towards it, yet everybody that came up at Bristol were impressed and uh, said it was far better than they thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit like you, Phil. I mean, I was interested in it from a technological point of view, Um, you know, and and just because I'm a bit of an AV nut and that's the kind of thing that, you know, appeals to me. But from a, you know, as a, as a user, was I I that interested? Not particularly. And and, and to be honest, um, you know, I think I'd be more interested in, say, a 3D projector where you could have a big image and then it would become more of an event like going to the movies and watching, say, Avatar in 3D at home may, may be appealing. I have, I have to say that, um, that my experiences with it in terms of gaming have, have changed my mind slightly in, in the sense that you know, if you are into games, I think it can have a you know, massive impact. Um, and I think that that's where the, the, the potential market is going forward, personally. Because um, you think about the content side, there's probably only, I think it's only about 100 movies that have ever been made in 3D. So... You know, including the ones that were made in the 50s and the ones that were made in the 80s. So there was very little real 3D content except for whatever Sky produces. So it's not going to be much in the way of content uh, for quite a long time, really. I mean, I know lots more films are being made in, in 3D now and, and some are being converted as well. But um, once again, we, as we already mentioned, that can be a double-edged sword. So, you know, I, I think it's a bit of a, the jury's really out until there's more mass acceptance and there's more content. I've got to agree with you totally there. And uh, the last point I wanted to make on 3D before we wrap up for this edition of the podcast is the manufacturer tie-ins with the content that is available. What a marketing disaster that has turned out to be. And if you want discs like uh, Coraline or Ice Age 3D, you have to buy Panasonic. Product. I know, you can't buy There's only one film currently, one film you can buy, um, which is cloudy with a chance of meatballs. To watch in 3D. Yeah, I feel, I feel really sorry for Panasonic too, because from what I've understood, Panasonic practically funded the R and D on Avatar, and there's no Avatar disc for them to bundle with their with their. Um, oh well. Oh uh, well, there is a rumor that, that that is coming in December and it's going to be an exclusive to Panasonic as well. So it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, bundle them in with your product, but also sell them um, yeah. in, in retail, and then people will at least have some content. And of course. Where it backfires is if you go and look on eBay now, uh, there's some people really coining it in, getting a couple of hundred quid per disc for some of these discs. That, that figures. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. You'd think, you know, to help push the technology, they'd want to have some content out there that people can watch with their, you know, show off their new uh, 3D TVs to their friends. It's a bit like releasing a, bl- a Blu-ray player but not having any Blu-ray. But I, Although again, I, I do remember the early days of DVD when there was only six DVDs you could buy. I think. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. You know, anybody going to and only released in six US cities. I had to get a friend of mine in New York to buy them for me and send them back over in the post. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the good old days of DVD. Um, <laughs> so 
Anyway, that wraps up this podcast uh, where we've basically just had a chat about the stuff that we have seen recently. If it's uh, packed your interest, you've got any questions you want to ask about any of the technologies we've spoken about uh, in this edition, uh, then send us an email to podcast at avforums.com uh, or leave your feedback under the podcast in the podcast forums and uh, we'll do our best to answer your questions there. Um, we will be back next month for our next edition of the Home Cinema Podcast. We'll have some more uh, TVs to go through that we've had a look at, as well as um, uh, quite an interesting projector as well, which uh, we will save the conversation for that one. Steve's had a good play with it. Um, So that just about wraps everything up. So thanks very much for your time, Steve. My pleasure. And uh, we will see you again for the next Home Cinema Podcast next month. Thanks for listening. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.